So, we came to Rome. Rome is where we've been heading in Acts for quite a long time. Just as uh, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' goal was, was always Jerusalem, and so much of that Gospel account was taken up with the story of Jesus going up to Jerusalem. So much of the second half of Acts has been taken up with Paul's journey to Rome. It's been a hugely indirect journey. Um, He had probably intended to go there freely to preach, but instead he has gone there as a prisoner. But nevertheless, he is in Rome. And we can't overestimate how big a deal that would be for Paul. We know from the beginning of the letter to the Romans that Paul had wanted to go to Rome. He had eagerly desired to go to Rome. And no surprise, Paul's commission from the Lord Jesus was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the centre of the Gentile world was Rome. Rome was the place for Paul to be. And here he is, at his goal. So what does he do there? What does Paul do once he gets to the capital of the world? The capital of the Gentile world. Well, the first thing that he does, and it might seem a bit strange, is he doesn't go to any Gentiles at all, but he summons the Jewish leaders to meet with him. Now, I don't know how this worked. I'm not quite sure how Paul had the authority to summon the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome to come to meet him. Uh, Obviously, he couldn't go to meet them. He was at relative liberty, but he was under house arrest. There was a soldier stationed to guard him, most certainly. So the Jewish leaders have to come to him. And for whatever reason, they do come. And the first thing that Paul wants to do is to launch a kind of preemptive defense. He gets the Jewish leaders together and he says, look, I want you to know that I'm not here because I want to accuse the Jews of anything. I'm not here even because I have transgressed against any of our customs or any of our laws. I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. Paul is presumably getting in ahead, just in case the people in Rome, the Jewish community in Rome, have heard of him already. They may well have done There was a lot of travel around the ancient world. There could well have been traffic between Rome and Jerusalem. Somebody could have come up and said, Paul is coming. Remember, he was first arrested over two years ago, two and a half years ago now. So he makes his defense. Unnecessarily, as it turns out, they haven't heard anything about him, good or bad. But it was worth doing. And uh, actually, Luke slips another thing in there as well about the Romans. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. So Paul's preemptive defense, delivered to the Jews, but also with one eye on what the Romans would be thinking, is I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong by the standards of the Jews. I haven't done anything wrong by the standards of the Romans. I'm not under arrest here because I'm a nefarious criminal. And I'm not under arrest because I'm a hideous heretic trying to subvert the hope of Judaism. Actually, he says, I've been absolutely true to my Jewish background 
and I've been absolutely guiltless with regard to the Roman law. Why is that important? Well, it's going to be important in the world into which Luke is writing, because opposition is coming to the gospel from both Jewish quarters and Roman quarters, and it matters that he be able to say, Christians are not guilty. They're not guilty of sinning against Jewish teaching or custom, and they're not guilty of breaking Roman law. It doesn't mean they won't suffer, the Christians. It doesn't mean that Luke expects the persecution to stop. It just means that he wants it to be clear. The persecution that is happening is not just. Paul actually says that it is because of the hope of Israel that he is bound with chains. He said a very similar thing in his trial before Agrippa a few chapters earlier. He is saying, it's not because I am a bad Jew that I am in chains. It is because I am a good Jew. It is because the hope of Israel that has kept our people going through the whole period of the Old Testament and through the long centuries after the finishing of the Old Testament when God seemed to be silent, the hope that God would send his Messiah, the hope that there would be resurrection from the dead. Paul says, that is why I'm here. That really matters. We were um, in, in junior church this morning. Cameron can tell you all about it. Uh, we were, <laughs> he probably can't. Um, we were talking about the fact that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And Luke here, through recording Paul's speech, wants to make it clear. If the Christians are suffering, if they're being opposed and persecuted, it's not because they're doing anything that deserves that. It is just because the world does not like their message and does not want to have anything to do with them. Okay, so Paul gets the Jewish leaders together. He delivers his, his unnecessary defense. But then he gets an opportunity off the back of that to do the other thing that he has done in every city that he has come to, and that is to preach the good news to the Jews. Actually, they initiate it. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to hear his views because although they haven't heard anything about Paul personally, they have heard quite a lot about these followers of Jesus. And specifically they've heard that it is bad to be a follower of Jesus. We know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Now even, even the language of a sect is immediately painting it in a very negative light. He's saying, this little weird splinter group from Judaism, we've heard about that, and nobody has anything good to say about it. It's kind of noble in a way that they don't um, conclude that they therefore don't want to hear Paul. They don't say, we've heard a good deal about your sect, and we know that nobody likes it, so we don't want to hear from you anymore. They want to hear it from, for themselves, from the horse's mouth. We know that nobody likes your sect, so let's hear what you have to say and then we can make our own judgment. And so Paul preaches. Um, he preaches from morning till evening. Um, <clears throat> anybody up for that? It would save that awkward transition from church into lunchtime and then back into church in the evening. You could just stay there all day? No? Okay. Well, anyway, they're up for it. Um, and actually, as, as, 
<clears throat> as we see that, we, we do get to see, um, again, Paul, Paul's method of preaching to the Jews, which is always to go into the Old Testament scriptures and to demonstrate to them that this Jesus, this man Jesus, is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and hopes of the Old Testament. That is what he is doing. He explains about the kingdom of God, and he tries to persuade them about Jesus. So he is, he is saying to them, the kingdom of God has come. The thing that we have been waiting for has happened. And then he is taking them into the Old Testament and saying, it was this man Jesus. He must have narrated the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and then compared them back into the Old Testament and said, this is it. This is the thing. This is what it was going to be like when the kingdom of God came. It's probably not a uh, method of gospel presentation that is going to serve us fantastically well, just because the majority of people we are trying to reach for Christ don't have this background in the scriptures. But for the people to whom Paul is speaking, this is what they need. They already believe the Old Testament. They have the hope of Israel, and Paul has to tell them, it has now been fulfilled in Jesus. Well, some of them are convinced. Others are unconvinced, and actually the language is quite strong. They would not believe. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, again, throughout Acts, I think... We've never encountered unbelief as a kind of neutral thing where some believed, others happened not to be convinced, and that was that. It's always an act of will. And here it is. Some were convinced, others would not believe. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so Paul delivers this really quite stinging condemnation quoted from Isaiah 6 and throws the house open. No longer just to Jews, but to everyone. He preaches to the Gentiles. And anyone who will come over the course of two years hears about the kingdom of God, hears about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's the end of the story. That's the end of Acts. And I almost feel like it's a bit of an anticlimax. Partly because when Paul gets to Rome, nothing dramatically different happens from what he has done in all of the other cities that he's reached. He preaches about Jesus to the Jews. After he gets a mixed reaction there, more negative than positive, he goes on and preaches to the Gentiles, where he gets a more positive harvest. So nothing very new there. But it does sum up one of the central themes of Acts, which has been just that. The gospel is for the Jews first, and then for the Gentiles. Um, the theology behind that, the ideas behind that, is all packed very tightly into places like Romans chapters 9 through 11. But the point is that Paul, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles still feels an obligation to go to God's Old Testament covenant people first. They must hear first. The message is properly for them. The kingdom of God is properly for them. Jesus is their Messiah. They must hear. And it is only when 
Paul is satisfied that they have heard and when they have responded negatively that he turns to the Gentiles. That's actually a theme that's right through the New Testament and it's a slight hobby horse of mine and if you want to ride my hobby horse with me there's a whole series that I preached in Romans 9 to 11 on the church website. It might seem really irrelevant to us But actually what it tells us is this, the fact that the gospel came to us, the fact that we heard about the kingdom of God, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour, is a remarkable act of God's free grace. It was a message for the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah. That that grace, that that gospel should overflow even to us, who had no vested interest in it as Gentiles. It's an astonishing thing. And actually, it's hard for us to get a handle on because of 2,000 years of Gentile Christianity. But one of the things that we see in Acts again and again is the church being blown away by how gracious God has been in sending the gospel also to the Gentiles. Remember when Peter came back and reported what had happened at Cornelius' house? The first Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. And some of the Jewish Christians were very critical. How could you go in and eat with Gentiles? Peter tells the story, and then it says they marveled. So God has also granted repentance to life unto the Gentiles, even those outsiders. And it seems weird to us because we're used to being the insiders. But from a gospel point of view, from a biblical point of view, if you're a Gentile Christian, you're not one of the insiders. You're one of those to whom the grace of God has amazingly overflowed in ways that nobody could have predicted. Because he's good. And because Jesus has reached out to you. In a lot of ways, that mirrors the geography, actually, of Luke's Gospel and of Acts. We've moved from Jerusalem, the centre of the Jewish world, to Rome, the centre of the Gentile world. Luke's told that story very carefully. If you think about it, the Acts of the Apostles only really tells you about two apostles, Peter and Paul. We know from other sources that the other apostles were out and about doing their thing in pretty widespread places, possibly as far away as India and as far west as Spain. We know that there was a lot of apostolic activity in the first few years of the church. But Luke tells the story of how the gospel moves from the heart of Judaism to the heart of the Gentile world. Not because the Jews are all completely rejected. In fact, as as he goes, Paul sees many Jews come to faith and many Gentiles. And he sees many Jews and many Gentiles reject the gospel as well. But the point is, the gospel is crossing boundaries all the way through Acts. The kingdom of God is expanding and reaching even us. But then again, at the end of Acts 28, the story stops. Paul does seem to deliver a really final judgment on those Jews who don't believe here. 
He quotes from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the passage where Isaiah is called to go and preach to Israel. And it's the most depressing calling to ministry that anybody has ever received. Isaiah is told, go and preach. Nobody will listen to you. Not only is that the case, but I, the Lord, have made sure that nobody will listen to you. Because it is past time for these people. They've had the opportunity to hear and repent. And now they're being judged. And the form which their judgment takes is that they cannot understand, cannot see, cannot believe. What Paul is saying is is really heavy. And yet it's followed up with, he welcomed all who came to see him and proclaimed the gospel boldly and without hindrance. Paul can say to those who have rejected Christ that they have been hardened and judged. But I bet, I betcha, one of those people turned up the next day and said, tell me that again? He wouldn't have turned them away. Paul knows that there are those whom God has hardened who won't listen. But to anyone who will listen, anyone at all, he'll give them the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The message that God has finally intervened in his broken world to fix it. That he's done it by appointing a saviour, Jesus Christ, and by raising him from the dead. Paul is in his rented accommodation for two years. Incidentally, how harsh is that? You've been imprisoned by the Roman state, still got to pay rent on your house. Rubbish. There he is, imprisoned in his own rented house, preaching the gospel for two years. And then what happened? Well, we don't know. We don't know why Acts ends where it ends. I can think of quite a number of plausible reasons. Uh, It could be that Acts ends here because this was when Luke wrote the book. Obviously, Luke couldn't write about stuff that hadn't happened yet. So maybe when Luke wrote the book of Acts, Paul was still in prison in, in his own rented house, preaching to everybody who came. Or maybe it's actually because Luke saw that that parallelism between Jerusalem and Rome actually worked really nicely for the point that he was trying to make. The gospel is now reaching the Gentiles, even the center of the Gentile world. It's probably, I suspect, one or other or both of those things. But I wonder whether it's also this. The danger that I have when I read Acts is that I put these guys on a massive pedestal. The apostles become the heroes. They are great. Now, clearly, to some extent, they are the heroes. Luke clearly does think that Paul is a bit of a hero. The way he reports him, you've got to say Luke has nothing but esteem for Paul. But the danger then is that I read the book of Acts and I think, these guys were great. The spirit was really moving back in those days. Church was growing. Stuff was happening. The gospel was really going out. That's fantastic. 
And then there's a cutoff point. And I say, didn't seem to happen anymore after that. I look around sort of my life and I think, not really seeing a whole lot of that. Not seeing very much in terms of dramatic movements of the Spirit. Not seeing very much in terms of many people at once coming to faith in Christ. And the danger, I suppose, is that I make the apostles into superhumans. And I imagine that whilst the apostles were alive, of course, awesome stuff happened. And then they sort of died. And then after that, it was all a bit drab and dull and, or at least less exciting. And possibly got gradually less and less exciting as generations went by. You know, maybe somewhere after most of the apostles had died, somebody wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. That was pretty cool. And then after that, it all petered out. I wonder if Luke drops us here with Paul still alive, still preaching, still in prison. Because he doesn't actually want to take us to a point where, and then Paul died and that was the end of the story. Because it isn't the end of the story. Because the story that Luke has been telling never was the story of the Apostle Paul. It was the story of the way the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, sent the gospel out to all nations and built up his kingdom. And it is massively important that we understand that is still the story. That is still what is happening. That is still the story that we ourselves need to live into. Um, Tom Wright, who's always an entertaining author, even if some of his books are ridiculously large. Um, seriously, the one I got for Christmas, too big for them to bind into one volume, so they had to print it in two volumes. It took me two months to read. It was mostly interesting, but that's not what I was talking about. Tom Wright talks about scripture as um, the script of a play. Uh, I find this just a helpful um, analogy because he says, look, what we need to realize is the play is still going on. It hasn't finished. And we are all actors in it. And so what we do with the book of Acts is we read it because what you can't do is jump in as an actor at the end of the play without having a foggy clue what happened in the first half. If you do that, you will probably ruin the play. That's my guess. I mean, if I pop up in the second half of Macbeth without having read the first half, or perhaps I read the first scene or something, oh, well, I thought this was about witches. No, no, the witches have gone now. Come on, get, get over it. Um, or if I start, you know, oh, is that Banquo over there? No, oh, he's dead. Shut up. Um, the point is, you can't jump into a play and start playing your part if you don't know what has already happened in the story. And what Luke has done with Acts is he has told us this is what has already happened. And now it is our role to play our parts consistently with this. If Paul has gone about speaking about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because that was something that Paul uniquely did. In some senses he had a unique calling to do it because he was an apostle. 
But it is also the fact that that is what the play is about now. That is what the story is about now. The kingdom of God has come near to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we too are called to be a part of the ongoing story. What if we dropped the title, The Acts of the Apostles, as many people have suggested we should do, and called it something like The Acts of the Holy Spirit, or, to be honest, I prefer, because I think this is the way Luke would say it, The Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then we could say, this is our story too. Not just something that happened a long time ago, but the beginning of our story, which must continue in the same vein. If we stop doing the sorts of things that we've seen Paul doing, if we stop being so excited about the fact that God has come near to us in Jesus, and that Jesus the Messiah has been raised from the dead, that we want to talk about it, if we stop that, if we stop trying to cross boundaries, cultural and all other sorts of boundaries, with this good news of Jesus Christ, we're not in this story anymore. And if we're not in this story, if we're not in this story anymore, we've got problems. Because it is this story that ends with the Lord descending from heaven and gathering his people up to be with him and recreating the earth so that we can live with him forever. No other story ends that way. So this is the story that we want to be in. Because the ending is good. Yes? In um, a number of its creeds, the church refers to itself as apostolic. You can interpret that lots of ways, and people have interpreted it lots of ways, most of them fairly unhelpful. But one helpful way in which you could interpret it is to say, the church is apostolic if it carries on doing this sort of thing, the apostle sort of thing, the thing that involves loving the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that the gospel is fantastic, speaking it across all sorts of boundaries, quite possibly going to jail, maybe having to rent your own house. Tedious. This sort of thing is what makes the church apostolic. And that's our calling. That's what we're here to do. To live this story. The encouragement that I draw from this chapter, and you'll excuse me, this is a piece of dubious exegesis, but I'm going to do it anyway. As I was reading this, uh, is verse 28. After he has denounced the unbelieving Jews, Paul says, Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. I've been thinking about that a bit. Most of the people I know, I'd have to say, don't seem to want to listen. But the gospel is invincible. And that is why Paul will say, they will listen. They will listen. This is God's plan. He will gather people in. He will build his church. They will listen. Maybe not all of them. Maybe not all the time. That is where the gospel has been sent. And it will, it will gather a harvest there. From the Gentiles, from the people around us, the people we see day by day.
we're still in the age of the Holy Spirit. Still in the age when the Lord Jesus works by his Spirit through his gospel to call people to himself. If we don't see as much of it as they did, can I suggest that the answer is only one thing, to pray. To pray. Because if it is the acts of the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit, then the one thing that it is not is the acts of us, the acts of me and you. We might be involved, we might be working, we might be in prison like Paul, but fundamentally, if the Lord Jesus sends his Spirit, then the Gospel will go to the Gentiles and they will listen. And that is what we have to pray for. Let me pray for that now, um, and then Kitty's going to lead us in some worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great plan to call people to yourself. Thank you for your great gospel. Please help us to rejoice in it more and more. Help us to be more and more committed to speaking it, to telling others of you. And please be at work through us and around us so that we would see salvation going out to those we know, those we work with, those we live nearby. We are dependent on you, dependent on your spirit. But your gospel is invincible. So please send us. We know that you are still the king, still the one with power, just as you were when these words were written. Please show it to us by bringing many people to salvation. For your own glory. Amen.